Welcome, I'm your host, George Sanders, introducing you to Humanity Matters Most, the podcast where we sit down with prominent researchers from the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. We want to show a personal, behind-the-scenes perspective of research projects that explore the world around us. On this episode, we have Associate Dean and English researcher Dr. Sally Connolly and Dr. Sharon Hill, the Director of the American Sign Language Interpreter Program in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. They'll be discussing Dr. Hill's research on the meanings and differences between American Sign Language and Spoken English. Hello, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Hill, who is the Program Director of the American Sign Language Interpreting Program in the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Houston. We're delighted to have her with us. I am Dr. Sally Conley. I am the Associate Dean for Student and Faculty Success here at the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. And I'm very much looking forward to learning more about Dr. Hill's fascinating research. Thank you so much for talking with me today. So, Dr. Hill, uh, your research looks into how variations in language and culture can complicate the American Sign Language, the ASL, interpreting process. And that sometimes... There are sort of prescriptive and pejorative assumptions that are made about how American Sign Language should operate. And that's where you focus in your research. Could you tell me a bit more about that? It sounds fascinating. Oh, absolutely. So my research, you are correct, it it does sit at the intersection of where American Sign Language and spoken English kind of merge or come together. And what happens in my field is that this concept of English, particularly American English or dominant American English, um, is considered to be the standard. And it's more so the formal version of that English that's considered to be the standard or what I consider what most of my profession call the gold currency of the profession. What that means then is that every other type of language that interpreters encounter, you are correct, they typically will have perhaps a prescriptive or a biased view about that variation of English. And so my research is the first of its kind in that it takes African-American language and then intersects American Sign Language interpreting. And interpreters were tasked to demonstrate their comprehension and their ability to interpret a spoken African-American language source message. The results were quite intriguing, for sure. Oh, really? Were you surprised by what you found? I was quite surprised by what I found, to be honest. When they were tasked with retelling this short story that had African-American language or African-American vernacular English components, the 20 participants, the average score is 47% of the messages was was retained, meaning 53% was lost. That's remarkable. It was quite surprising to me (laughs) um, because I think... I, too, had my own biases about the very language that I speak. Typically, will not use African-American English when I'm in a public arena or when I'm working. And I still didn't think that it was going to require or create that type of confusion. And then when these same interpreters were asked to interpret a different message that had African-American English, only 55 percent of the source message was conveyed on average. So there's, again... Half the message lost. I'm very excited to share this research because for the first time in my profession, interpreters will have a quantitative answer to what do I do when I hear African-American language? My research identified no less than eight linguistic features that will help them to know how to navigate this language, um, this particular language variation. Wow, that's remarkable. And so as an English literature professor by (laughs) trade and training, uh, I'm aware of how slippery language can be and how there is a lot of Go, boom, misunderstanding, but this sounds like a, an order of magnitude 
uh, greater. And is that something to do with the nature of sign language itself? Because as I understand it, it's the spoken word doesn't directly correlate to the sign. Uh, that there is a one-on-one coordination between the two, correct? Correct. I I know you're taking me back now to when I first decided that I wanted to try to be an interpreter. And I thought, well, for every word that's spoken, there will be an ASL sign that I'll need to learn. And if I learn all the signs, I put them together, voila, I'm an interpreter. (laughs) And then I took my first interpreting class and I discovered the words were the least of my concerns. It's what do they mean? What's the meaning behind the words, right? What's the intonation? What's the intention? What's the impact? Um, What's the relationship here between these people that are trying to interact? And I thought, oh, I need to quit. I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very curious as well. Your PhD is from a British university, the University of Birmingham in -hmm. the Midlands in England. And I know there's difference between British Sign Language and American Sign Language. And then on top of this, you have the subcategory of African-American Sign Language. Could you give us some idea of the kind of differences that exist between that that spectrum of different sign languages? Oh, absolutely. Um, That's another, I think, myth that people have that sign language is universal. Well, spoken language isn't universal, so you're correct every country or Every spoken language has a corresponding sign language. I do not know British Sign Language at all, but I can tell you one of the major differences that most people are aware of is that in American Sign Language, if I wanted to spell a word, spell my name, the alphabet is one-handed, meaning that I can do it all just on my right hand. That's the hand I choose to use. For British Sign Language, the alphabet requires two hands. There's a movement around the palm and fingers, and I just don't know, and I cannot. I practice very hard, but I just cannot. <laughs> I can't master it. So kudos to all our BSL interpreters out there. And then you are correct. We have BASL, which is Black American Sign Language. And many people may wonder, well, does such a thing actually exist? But interestingly, the time of segregation impacted everyone, including the deaf community. So it wasn't just the public schools that were segregated, but schools for the deaf were segregated as well. So you had individuals that were Black and deaf, and they were trained and taught in a completely segregated environment in the South. And how did that affect and and manifest in the ways in which Black sign language developed? Oh, well, the... Manual versus oral debate impacted individuals that were in desegregated schools significantly, but in a positive way. Because they were considered at that time less than, there was no mandate that limited their ability to use sign language in their education. For students that were deaf and were not Black, so you have students that are or at least appear to be or identify as white, they were prohibited from using sign language. The mandate was force them to communicate using whatever residual hearing they have. And so you had this thriving sign language community in the schools where there were Black deaf students. And then you had students that were in these public schools or these other schools for the deaf, where their hands were literally being hit. They were being physically disciplined. um, And they were finding a way to communicate manually, but secretively. Okay. Yeah, so two parallel languages occurring, but the trajectory quite different. And so there's this strong history and tradition of Black Sign Language in America. 
There is. In fact, it's a language that continues to thrive and survive. And the researchers who published a book, The Hidden Treasure of Black ASL, I call one of the researchers the original Dr. Hill, Joseph Hill, <laughs> <laughs> along with uh, Syl Lucas, uh, Robert Bailey, and of course, Carolyn McCaskill. They published the first, and to date, it remains the only book that documents um, and provides some examples, both a video and historic example of Black ASL, the history of it even, right? How the language has changed and transformed. So we're hoping to have more research um, be conducted by individuals of that community so that it can continue to grow. Well, that really speaks to how important uh, your research is, that so little has been conducted on this major thread in American Sign Language thus far. I think that this year as well, American Sign Language has really captured the public imagination, possibly in a way that, that it hadn't previously, thanks to the wonderfully expressive young woman, Justina Miles, who was mm-hmm. the interpreter for Rihanna's halftime Super Bowl show back in, so I'm not a, a sports fan, but it was in <laughs> January, but she captivated the public imagination. Uh, so can you speak to me a bit about what Justina Miles was doing? Is that, strictly speaking, interpretation in the, the sense that you teach it at the University of Houston, or is this different form of expression when you're interpreting, say, for example, the lyrics of a song? Oh, you are. You're brilliant. That's a great question. I was hoping someone would ask that question. <laughs> so great ask. So for Justina, Miss Miles, the beautiful thing about her work is that the National Association of the Deaf, they collaborate with Super Bowl in order to provide not what you might consider to be an interpreter, but instead an ASL performer. And so what you saw was actually a performance. This is an individual who is deaf who has utilized this language on a daily basis. And she engaged in a translation of sorts to where she analyzed the lyrics, she analyzed the song, she analyzed the meaning. And when it was showtime, whether Rihanna was going to put on a show or not, this performer was going to deliver a show. This was a moment. <laughs> yes, for the deaf community. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, though, because as beautiful as that was, most people didn't even have an opportunity to see it until later. It wasn't broadcast on the TV screen. You had okay. to access it um, via a website in order to see that performance. But she put on a show, bar none, it was fantastic to watch. And definitely, I would say, transformative in terms of having the first Black deaf performer perform for the Super Bowl. Yes. Absolutely. And so can you tell me, so you're saying... About Justina Miles, so she is deaf. You're an interpreter, so hearing interpreter. Can you speak to me a little bit about how your roles differ and how that operates within the deaf community? So often when you see an interpreter, for example, a lot of the briefings for COVID, the interpreter who delivers the White House briefings, those interpreters are deaf. So they're not bound by what they hear because they're deaf. They are working with the hearing interpreter who is stationed across from them, directly in front of them. That hearing interpreter is taking the audio that they hear and providing the message. And then the deaf interpreter, I don't even know how they do this. The amount of responsibility that they place on your shoulders, mm-hmm. because ASL seems to be the only language where we ask one interpreter to meet the needs of the entire deaf community. All of their um, education, their communication skills, that one deaf interpreter has to do it. Um, and so for me, 
I might be bound by if the person delivers a message and says, all right, it's important that the community stay calm. Even though you and I both know if we hear that, that means emergency. It's a problem. (laughs) There's a situation. I might, as a hearing interpreter, be bound by the tone and the volume in which I hear and deliver that message that way. But the deaf interpreter, when they receive that message from me, they're going to look at the totality of the event and think about the community and deliver that message in a way that has the greatest impact. It is an emergency situation, and they want to ensure that their fellow deaf community members are aware of that. So while I may be bound or limited by that which I hear, the deaf interpreter and the ASO performer, they're not. They're bound only by the message. Right. That's a remarkable responsibility and an incredibly complex duty to have to perform. Dr. Hill, does code switching exist within sign language? Might someone switch between the ASL and ASL as as one does when one is speaking, or is, is that not something that would occur? Oh, it definitely is something that occurs. You're correct. In spoken languages, code switching occurs all the time. For me, I code switch between dominant American English and African American English or African American language. But in American Sign Language, um, you may have two deaf individuals that are having a conversation and then here comes a eager but slightly not fluent ASL student that approaches them. They would switch not just the speed, but even the type of ASL or the type of vocabulary or terms they might use because communication is always the key. And Mm -hmm. so you'll have that switch occur. Perhaps they might sign in a way that is more in English word order because American Sign Language does not follow English word order or English syntax. And then at the moment that person turns away, boom, they're right back to the natural way in which they would speak with each other without a third pair of eyes on them. So code switching definitely occurs within the deaf community. Yes. So there's this, this parallel with verbal spoken American English. Yeah. I understand it, Dr. Hill. You use live theatre to educate and train students and inform the public about the diversity in language. And I'd love to hear a bit more about how you do that and how that works. Oh, absolutely. I recall being a young girl and my mother taking me, my father would say dragging us, but I would say taking (laughs) us to theatre. And the one thing I knew about theatre is that the moment the show starts, you're in another world. The better the actor, the the better the world becomes for you, the more real it becomes. And so what I noticed when I started teaching interpreters is they would come into my classroom, students, and I'm trying to teach this, let's look at the meaning, let's get big picture. And in the middle of class, they would ask, but Professor Hill, how do you sign this? Or can you show me the sign that all they wanted were the signs? Just give me the words and I'll put them together and I'll be an interpreter. And I thought, how can I get them away from this focus on just words and get them to think about concept and implicit meaning and impact? And theater sprung to mind. And so um, I was able to reach out to several theaters, but specifically Hobby Center, where the Broadway shows are performed here in Houston, Texas. And Judy Stylings was so great. She agreed in 2016 to allow our students and me to provide an ASL accessible show to Oliver. And the students were thrilled, Dr. Connolly. They were so excited when they found out that they were going to have this assignment until the opening song. <laughs> and I don't know if you know the opening song to Oliver, but it's food, glorious food. I do. And I have to learn it in school. Did you? They speak yeah. about something called gruel. 
Oh yeah, you don't want to eat gruel. That's <laughs> it's like nasty, savory porridge. <laughs> See, well, so these were things where first they had to understand the word, but then they had to go deeper into not just what is it, but what are the implications of the social status of those that typically eat that, right? What does right. it feel like? What does it look like? What's the meaning of using that word or that reference in that space? And so, oh, we were here at campus day and night rehearsing and practicing, but they had an aha moment where for the first time, it didn't matter how something was said, if it was said right or wrong, it just mattered what was said and what was meant and the impact on the actors and the audience. And mm -hmm. so it's, you know, to see them actually have this moment where they weren't just hovering like atop the language, but they were within the language. It was a beautiful, I'll never forget that moment. It was beautiful to watch those students perform. That sounds absolutely wonderful. I hope I get to see a performance like this at some point. And I'd love to hear more about what's next for you, Dr. Hill. What are you setting your sights on next? Well, I I think I'm always going to be devoted to the students first. So my goal at some point is to try to find a way to establish funding to support our bilingual and trilingual students. They work so hard. This is one of those hidden professions that sometimes get seen only in these moments of public performance, but there's intense studying and community and language immersion. So any type of scholarship funding, I'm focused on that for our students. But in terms of pushing the discipline forward, my goal is that those in the field of ASL English interpreting really start to partner with linguistics. They start to recognize Mm -hmm. the variations of English that exist in the varieties. I mean, just you and I right here, we're speaking two different varieties of English as we're conducting, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> right? As we're conducting this interview, there are other varieties out there. There's Boston English, there's Appalachian English, there's, I guess I'm using a bit of Texan English. Um, <laughs> we have Cajun English and those need to be recognized. And I, I'm hoping that interpreters that are fluent in those varieties start to recognize their value and then begin to conduct research on them. Yes, I'm speaking to you from the UK now and my British family are very bemused by me using your, <laughs> which I have adopted since I've lived in Texas since 2008. So, yes, I can I can absolutely see the, the need for that, that sort of research. And how can our listeners follow what you're doing next? Could you possibly share uh, how ways they can follow your research, uh, such as your social media handles? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the first thing that they can do, we try to post as much as we can on our official U of H website, just because the community in which we work in are very visual. So just going to uh.edu backslash ASLI would allow them to see some of the latest information in terms of research and publications and to stay abreast of news within our program. Um, in addition to that, we are on social media. My students are always trying to find me on social media, so I block. I, I'm, I'm there, but I'm not there. <laughs> course, we're on the old school Facebook, just because there's so many events that happen via Facebook within the deaf community. And so we're there at U Houston ASLI. And then we're also on Instagram as well with the same handle. We try to share as much as we can with the public. It's not my language at all. So I'm very cognizant of the fact that the community wants to know what are we doing with the language? There's a lot of responsibility, I feel, on my shoulders for sure. 
Absolutely. Well, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for taking the time to explain your fascinating research to me today. We're enormously proud of you and we're very grateful that you're at the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Connolly. Thrilled to have this interview with you. It was an honor and a delight to chat with you from across the pond. (laughs) Have a good day. You too. This episode was brought to you by the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences, as well as the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. We would also like to send a special thanks to the Center for Student Media for their participation as well. Our team consists of the producer, Laura Smith, producer, sound engineer, and host, George Sanders, graphic designer, Nikita Green, and our intro and outro songs were provided by Dizzy Gold. If you would like to know more about our podcast, you can find information at www.uh.edu forward slash class.